Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. My guest today is Wendy Welch. She's the author of The Little Bookstore of Big Stone Gap. It's published by St. Martin's Press. It's just come out in paperback, and it's a pleasure to have you here today, Wendy. Thank you very much for having me. This is a memoir about opening, as it says right on the cover, a bookstore in Big Stone Gap. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about... What drew you to the town of Big Stone Gap and deciding to open up a bookstore there? Sure. We came to Big Stone Gap to just get out of the rat race for a year. We had come from a place we refer to as the snake pit, which anyone who has ever worked in any state or government job will know immediately what that describes. And we just wanted to tuck up for a year, live cheaply, live simply, enjoy our life, regroup, figure out what we're going to do and move on. And while we were there, we saw this big Edwardian mansion, 1903, five bedrooms, squeaky wooden floors house, and started thinking about one of our lifelong dreams, which had been to open a bookstore. Now, we were there heartbroken and financially broke and strapped, and this was not the right time to do it. It was 2006. The economy was tanking. Ebooks were hoping into view on the horizon. Everything was against us, but we were so tired and so unhappy, we figured, what the heck, why not just jump? And that's what we did. As you also point out in the book, when you and your husband arrived in Big Stone Gap, you know, this is a small town with a population of 5,000 people. Not really the ideal place to try and establish a customer base for a bookstore. Yeah, it, how about that? It was, it was 5,400 people, and the surrounding area, as we later learned, has, depending on how you measure, there were basically about 120,000 people who could realistically shop at our bookstore. They would be willing to drive that far to get to it. But we didn't know that at the time. At the time, we knew that there was a town of 5,400 people and we we did what you're never, never supposed to do. And all of you young people who are 22 and 23 years old graduating from college, listen very carefully. Don't apply for a job just because you want it. Apply for jobs that you know how to do. Because what we did was basically decide, since we run, wanted to run a bookstore, we were fully qualified to do it, and we would just figure it out as we went along. That 5,400 thing came up a lot those first two years. There's a great moment early in the memoir where you're talking with one of the your neighbors about how things aren't working out quite as you planned. And she says to you, you know, Wendy, most people put together a business plan before they open a business. <laughs> that was Teddy. That was Teddy Bland. She, she's done a lot of work in D.C. and big cities and lived her life all over the world. And uh, she kind of looked at me when I said, tell me what to do. Give me some advice. And she said, what were you thinking? Why, why, why didn't you make a business plan? My husband and I often joke about this because he has an MBA. And he used to teach business management soft skills to prospective employers and employees both. And we think we just basically opened up our heads, took everything we knew out of it, threw it away, and then closed our brains up again and started over. We just reinvented ourselves. And it worked, but by all rights and purposes, it shouldn't have worked. Tell me a little bit about Big Stone Gap and where it is and, and what made you wants to go there when you were looking to sort of regroup. I am from Northeast Tennessee, and Big Stone Gap is Southwest Virginia. It's where the two states basically toe up against each other. They're both kind of triangular at the corners, and they overlap each other. You asked why we wanted to go to Big Stone Gap. It was particularly that we just wanted to be in that region of Appalachia, sort of the coal fields, gentle, quiet place. Big Stone Gap, one of my favorite quotes about it is our pastor of our local church. He says, it's not the edge of nowhere, but you can see it from there. 
it's really some place you have to be working pretty hard to get to. It's about 45 minutes off any major interstate. It's one of those tiny little towns that got bypassed by the highway system. And it's just a gentle, quiet place. I mean, it's not... It's not the sleepy little poke town some people would believe would be in that kind of situation. There are incredible people there. And I think that's one of the things we discovered after we moved there. When we moved there, we just thought quiet, gentle, sweet life. But after we moved there, we discovered this vibrant group of people, kind of intellectuals from everywhere who were just hanging there. In fact, getting to know your neighbors is a really big part of the story that you're telling here establishing yourself in this community where for a long time you were viewed as interlopers. Yeah. Was yeah. A, well, that was a big obstacle in terms of getting the store established and getting people to come shop. One of the other things people tell us now that they didn't tell us when we first moved there was that the prevailing wisdom is it takes six years to really start to make impacts or be allowed to make impacts in Big Stone Gap or, or in any small town, let's say, in Coalfields, Appalachia. It takes about five years for people to believe you're not just coming there to either establish a business, get successful, and move somewhere bigger, or that you're not there. And in the book, there's a there's a kind of a, a funny little drumbeat that beats through this part of Appalachia. If you're living in a very small town, you're either there because you couldn't hack it somewhere else, or you're there because you don't want to go somewhere else, or you're, you're there waiting to get out to go somewhere else. And it's not a healthy way for American towns to be viewing themselves. There's so much going on in Big Stone. There's so many people who are smart and happy and cheerful and want to be there. But the assumption is that anyone who's there can't be very good at what they do because look where they are. If they were better at it, they'd be someplace else. And that's, I joked once, I said if your daughter had that attitude, wouldn't you take her out and buy her a prom dress and get her colors done and talk to her about how she was feeling about herself? At the same time, in those early months and years, you were also sort of subconsciously or unconsciously maybe reinforcing that attitude a little bit. With You talk about the, you know, the early approach being, oh, we'll try running a bookstore. We'll see if we can make it work. And basically the town sort of interprets that as, yeah, they're not really serious yeah, about this. <laughs> they don't know what they're doing and they're not committed to us. That's exactly what people thought. Because we had said openly when we got started in the bookstore, we were trying to keep our investment low, our overheads low. And we figured if after a year it didn't work, we'd just sell the house and move on. Well, People have heard, I'll just sell and move on all their lives from people who come to Appalachia from somewhere else. And even though we were, my husband is Scottish, but I'm Appalachian born, even though we were kind of technically a little more in, we didn't know that they were interpreting that as you're going to turn tail and run the minute anything gets hard on us. And we're so used to that, we're, we're not really interested in investing in you because you're not investing in us. Was there something other than just sticking around for the long haul that flipped the switch for you? Or, or was it pretty much a matter of, at some point, it's like, you know, they've been here a while. They're for real. It was a combination of just the longevity. Yeah, you know, we, we've, they've been here for three years. They're still there. It was the fact that we actually could still be there. You know, living upstairs kept our costs down. We ate air. We knit our own toilets. We did anything we had to do in the house. We repaired it ourselves. So it was a combination of just sticking it out long term. And also... After about a year, 
the, the local reporter for the Kingsport Times. Big Stone Gap is so small it doesn't actually have a media market. It falls between two larger newspapers and runs its own small weekly newspaper. And then it has a local radio station that gets most of its delivery from other sources. We had a tornado and we got the warning 20 minutes after the tornado came through. You know, that's the kind of media market it is. So we didn't know anything about how the media area worked. But this man showed up one day. I was off doing something. I think I was teaching class at the college. I'd gotten some adjuncting work. And I came home and Jack said, guess what? There was a reporter here. And it turned out to be a man named Stephen Igo. And he had come over to the bookstore just because he thought it was kind of cool that a town this small had a bookstore. And he did a big old interview with Jack. Jack plied him with shortbread. He asked Jack questions. He petted the cats. He took some photographs. Well, the whole article and the photograph ran above the fold, three-page center column color on the Sunday paper, which has a massive circulation. And before you knew it, there were people flooding the shop. I didn't know there was a bookstore in Big Stone. I didn't know there was a bookstore in Big Stone. And that kind of turned the first level of interest because all of a sudden people from Kingsport, the big town about an hour away, thought we were cool. And the next thing you know, the locals were going, well, maybe they are going to stay. Maybe they aren't just here to be getting what they can and getting away again. And and people were starting to meet us, and they, they wanted to know more about the bookstore from the article. They wanted to, they wanted to talk to the cats is what they <laughs> wanted. They would come and ask about the cats and the photos. So it all just kind of took off from there. You talk about really sort of like scraping by in those early years, and I mean, you don't make a, a deliberate point of this, but as I'm reading the, the memoir, there's this passage where you're talking about the layout of the store and how the store has really taken over the first floor of what was intended to be a family home and how I think it was like, you know, the humor section is in the bathroom on the first floor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then Jack, your husband, balks at <laughs> adding new bookshelves to the bathtub. Yeah. Saying yeah, that yeah. that's just like a little too much. And I'm sitting here thinking it's like, you know, I bet if these people had the budget for it, they would have gutted the bathtub out of yeah. <laughs> If we had had the money for it, we would have lived somewhere else and used the house as a bookstore. The mm-hmm. only reason we moved in upstairs is because that was all the money we had. I talk about this in the book. We had Wendy's Reserve Fund because having gone through the snake pit, I didn't ever want to be somewhere else again that I couldn't leave if I needed to. But we, we set that money aside, and then after that, we just weren't allowed to go in debt any more than we did for the bookstore. So we were very, very careful, and I really think that's what saved us. We didn't know that you would get a tax break for living above your store. But since the publication of the book in, in the last year in all the bookstores that we've talked to and the people that we've heard from, it, it came out in Portugal and it came out in Korea, among among some other countries, but the... The Portuguese bookstores and the people in Korea have been really embracing of it. And a couple of the bookstores in Portugal have emailed and said, you know, we do this too. We, we live over the store. Or uh, there was a bookstore in Illinois that was getting ready to close. It's called Afterwards Books. And Luann Locke runs it in uh, Edwardsville, Illinois. And she was getting ready to stop. Her rent was too high. She couldn't make it. Well, she read Little Bookstore and she thought, one more time. I'm going to try one more time. And she found a building where she could live upstairs and have the bookstore downstairs. And now she's making it. And she's she's actually up for the 2013 Independent Business of the Year Award for her community because she just stuck it out. And that story brings up a point that I wanted to discuss in terms of the book having been out for a year now and coming out of paperback. In, in that year that it's been out and that you've been promoting it, you must have been getting in touch with, you know, establishing contact with a lot of indie booksellers across the country, I would imagine. 
when we knew the book was going to be published in 2011, we actually went on a road trip. I write a blog, and there's actually a section of my blog that, that is dedicated to this. It just, it just stays there. Uh, it's called the Booking Down the Road Trip. And it's a day-by-day account of this five-states-out loop, five-states-back loop. We went to 42 small towns looking for bookstores, just looking for bookstores in small towns across America, out to Kansas and back up. And it was fairly amazing. We found that about 18 of those small towns were thriving. We, we started just looking for bookstores, and then we started looking at the small towns themselves and what was still in there. We also made a deal with ourselves that we wouldn't eat in chain restaurants and we wouldn't shop in chain stores. We wouldn't go into any chains. The only thing we had to do was we had to get hotels at night that were chains because there, it just wasn't an option. In some places, they didn't have hotels that weren't chains. And that was a, a fairly wild ride. So we, we met a lot of bookstore owners and a lot of small business owners on that trip. And some of them we went back to and visited after the book came out, or they were very gracious about promoting it. But the big thing was in the years since then, one of the things... <laughs> Again, you know, you just do what's in front of you and you don't think about what's coming next. A lot of people came to the bookstore to visit, other bookstore owners, but also just people, you know, girlfriend posses, uh, reading clubs, writing clubs. They just wanted to see the bookstore, our, our bookstore, and they came to it. And they would come and tell us the loveliest stories about their bookstores back in their hometown. That When they went home, they would kind of connect us. And so there's a lot of Facebook friends and a lot of, there's actually a support group that we started on Facebook for some small bookstores just across the Midwest. And that's been an unexpected bonus of the book is making that we call it the second round of community. We knew that in our community we were making a community around the bookstore. But that second round of readers and writers and bookstore owners like across America and even in some other countries, that's been absolutely lovely. I mean, that whole aspect of the bookstore as community center is something that you return to time and time again. It's also been called third place is a, a term that gets mentioned a lot in yeah. other people's yeah. thoughts about what a bookstore brings to a community. I think it's Ray Oldenburg that, that coined the term the third place, but and there's even a bookstore in, is it Seattle or Bellingham, that's called the third place in, in Washington State. When we started the bookstore, kind of a corollary to that, well, if you're here, what good are you, kind of small-town, self-defeatist mentality, a corollary to that is that there are a lot of people in small towns, because the employment market is, is small, there are a lot of very bright people, very smart people in towns who are underemployed, for how smart they are. And they need something to do. They need people to talk to. They need places to go. They need people to hang with. And they started to find the bookstore. And this this group of, I don't know if you would call it intellectual misfits unless you see that as an endearing term. We sure did. We saw these just lovely people, these smart people, these fun people, these funny people start coming into the bookstore. And they did, you know, daytime jobs in in clerks and restaurants and simple things like that, but they were just looking for somebody to talk to and a community to connect with. And all of a sudden, there we were, and all the misfits and the artists and the cool people started to come and hang out and read and drink coffee. And all of a sudden, we had a coffee shop running. And that was just the coolest thing, too. At what point did you decide to sort of go beyond like having all these great stories that you could tell amongst yourselves and that you and Jack could share to you and saying, you know what? I should be setting these down and sharing them with anybody as right. a book. Okay, so about year three, everything even now. The whole first two years was just a wild ride. You're going to close. You're not going to make it. You're doing it wrong. People don't like you. It's not working. And all of a sudden, about year two, 
it was. We just looked at each other one day, and we had paid our taxes. We weren't eating mac and cheese anymore. We actually had enough money to put the floor we needed into our bathroom upstairs. And we went, we're doing it. What? Oh my goodness, we're doing it. And it's like I always say in the book, happiness sneaks up on you from behind. The minute you look it straight in the eye, you don't see it, but it's, it's always fluttering just outside your sight line. And we knew that we had kind of done what we set out to do. So that was just around the beginning or middle of year three. And there's a great quote of Flannery O'Connor and Joan Dyden both said something similar. They basically said, you write down what happened to you to figure out what happened to you. And and I did. I, I wrote down what had happened and just, just to try and make some sense of the story as I remembered it. And I was telling a friend of mine, uh, Margie Tucker, about it. And she started laughing. And now we were having coffee in the library at the college where we both teach. And she was laughing so hard, I thought we were going to get thrown out of the library. And she said, you know, you really ought to write these down and send them off to someone. I said, well, you know, I, I have been writing them down, but I don't know about sending them off. And she said, no, 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 you really need to. So I did what every aspiring writer should do. This is like the best overlooked advice for writers who are trying to get an agent. Go to a bookstore. Find the books that are like the book that you're writing. Look in the acknowledgments and see who the agents are. Find out if they accept unsolicited queries and email them or write them or whatever. And ask them if you can send a query or send a query, depending on what their guidelines are. And more or less, that's what I did. I sent off 11 query letters, including one from a friend, a friend of mine who had published a book said, you know, I think you should query my agent. Now, that's all she did. She just said, I think you should query my agent. My agent will accept a query letter from you. And from there, you have to take it yourself. Sometimes people kind of, they, they email or they call writers and they want help, but they don't know what kind of help they need. And there really isn't anything anyone can do to connect you to an agent except, say, the agent will accept your query letter, you know, and, and look at it. So that's what she did for me. And the next thing you know, Pamela Malpas and I and my agent began to work together. And she is just the smartest and most kind-hearted woman. And she did a really good job of selling the book very, very quickly. In addition to the stories that you tell, you also talk a lot about some of the issues that are affecting independent bookstores these mm. days. And there's one a little later in the book, uh, a section where you talk about, and if we haven't specified it yet, the little bookstore is, or, or Tales from the Lonesome Pine, to give it its, its proper name. Tales of the Lonesome Pine. It's a used bookstore. Mm -hmm. Primarily, yes. Yeah, primarily. And there was a conversation that you had with somebody at some point where they pointed out that as a used bookstore, the authors were, were kind of getting cut out of the loop in terms of like... Yeah, once mean, it's sold. And there were, yeah, and there were... And, there were a lot of good, I mean, there are a lot of great reasons to have a used bookstore, particularly in a community that is hit with economic hard times. But there's a point in that conversation where I think, you know, somebody says, oh, well, you know, when you're, when you're an author, let's see how your, your attitude changes. <laughs> ah! Okay. So I have a really funny story to tell you. Because, mm -hmm. yeah, I remember that conversation. And also, uh, my agent and I talked about this a little bit. She said, you know, used books are kind of the, we won't say redheaded stepchild, but used books are kind of the, the thing no one knows how to respond to in publishing because you are a secondary market and the authors themselves are no longer receiving benefit. And we talked about in, in the book and in talking about this between my agent and I, we talked about how houses get sold the second time and the architect gets nothing after the second time. Other pieces of art get sold. Rembrandt's no longer making money. You know, this is how it works. And we understood that. 
in terms of a market model. But the really, really funny thing that happened was I uh, had joked with a friend about how long it would take before my book hit the secondhand bookstore market because I was waiting for it to come back to me. I was waiting for someone to buy it for me and then bring it back to me as a secondhand book. You know, I was going to wait to see how long that took. Well, no one ever did that. But about a month after the book had been out, the ARC, you know, the advanced reading copy that they had printed out, wound up in a secondhand bookstore in Connecticut. And the guy who bought it, um, his, his name, <laughs> I better not, his name was Mike, we'll just say. Uh, he wrote me a really nice letter, and he enclosed a $10 bill. <laughs> and he said, I bought your book for, I think, $7 at this book barn in Connecticut, and I really enjoyed it, and I liked the discussion you had about how authors never made money the second time around. So I'm sending you $10 and wishing you well. I, I wrote him back, thank you, though. That, it was just so sweet and so adorably charming and funny. But the whole issue that secondhand bookstores don't do anything for the authors anymore it's sort of like libraries. Mm -hmm. When your word is out there, when people like it, if they want to keep it, they're going to go buy a new copy of it. It's, it's the same thing. I said something in, in my book about e-readers and how, you know, I didn't mind people reading on e-readers, but their tertiary effect was to take down bookstores because right. people don't buy books. I actually think I was wrong about that now because some people have come back to me. A, a lady came to the store in December this past Christmas and said, I'm buying 24 copies of your book. Because I read it on an e-reader, and I loved it, and I'm giving it to all my friends as Christmas presents. And I think you're wrong about the effect, because if people like it, they will buy a hard copy of it. You know, paperback or hardback, but they will buy a copy of it and keep it. And I think that's probably is true. I don't think the e-reader is having as negative an effect on bookstores as I feared. It's having an effect, but it's not... It's not the biggest one by a long shot. It's interesting. Um, you know, the day that we are having this conversation, Amazon has just announced that it's trying to convince independent bookstores to sell Kindles. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to have a long wait on that one. Yeah, it's just, you know, God love them. It's okay to want to be the biggest big store, bookstore in the world. It's okay to be the biggest. It's not okay to want to be the only. Right. That's not okay. I think in, in the long run, as you say, it's e-readers, whether they're Kindles or, or Nooks or whatever, you know, at the very least, they are sustaining just as used bookstores are sustaining and libraries are sustaining this environment in which reading can thrive. And eventually, when we go through the, the available options of like the stuff that is available secondhand or digitally cheap, eventually there's going to be something out there that we want more, and it's going to be a book. And you're going to go buy it. I think the model of the future is going to be a hybrid of used and new bookstores. Almost every used bookstore sells some new books, and they're usually local books, either books about the region or books by local authors, one or the other. And I think in the future, that's what we're going to see is that recirculation, but also the new books that are still coming out are going to be there too. And it's, it's just the best way forward for bookstores in general. Another thing that I saw recently in the book trade press is that your bookstore has gone Hollywood. <laughs> so oh, <laughs> let's yeah. talk about that. <laughs> oh, good grief. There have been two authors that have made a big impact in Big Stone Gap before me. I like to think I've made a big, big, big impact. I think I'm kind of a cheerful little mid-list, mid-seller, but that's okay with me. 
the first person was in the early 1900s, I think the book came out in 1909, was The Trail of the Lonesome Pine by John Fox Jr. And he was the first of the big authors to chronicle Big Stone Gap. He lived in Big Stone Gap. This was at the time when it was going to be the Philadelphia of the, of the South and the future, and, and coal was booming and everything was wonderful. And he wrote several novels about uh, Little Shepherd of Kingdom Come, these other, other novels. And he was the first big guy to put it on the map. Right. And, and in fact, the, the, the name of the star comes from that. Exactly. We're across the street from the theater that has one of the longest-running dramas, outdoor dramas in America, called The Trail of the Lonesome Pine. It's, it's kind of a folk opera based on that book. So we wanted the name to reflect the heritage of the town. Then Adriana Trigiani has written, among her many bestsellers, a quartet of books based in Big Stone. The first one was simply called Big Stone Gap, and then she had three more uh, culminating in Home to Big Stone Gap. They're novels, and it's been maybe 10 years now that she's been planning to make a movie, but she held out so that she could make it in her hometown of Big Stone Gap. And they're there now making it. Everywhere you look, there are A-listers walking down the street in Big Stone and people checking out the scenes behind the scene. And if people are interested in the behind the scenes of the Hollywood part of Big Stone Gap right now, they should really go take a look at the blog that I write because I'm writing a lot. Our bookstore is across the street from a lot of the filming that they're doing. And so we kind of have a bird's eye view from our second story cafe to watch what's going on. And we've, we've blogged a lot about just all the hysterical fun that's going on right now in town. If the cafe is on the second floor now, and I mean, you guys originally were living upstairs. <laughs> are you guys, where are you guys, where, where's there room for you now? <laughs> well, there was this tree out back. <laughs> uh, we moved into the basement. My husband, you know, I joke that I knit toilets and my husband lays down floors. Between us, we have a lot of handicraft abilities. That's what saved our bacon the first two years when we didn't have any money. And Jack, about year five or year six, went, discovered the stair to our basement. We knew there was a basement outdoor entrance but we didn't know there was an internal entrance and we found it and he reopened it and renovated the downstairs ostensibly first of all for a writing room for me because by this time there were a lot of people coming to the bookstore the book had been out about six months and we absolutely loved having the visitors absolutely loved having them there but sometimes I needed to be writing and so I would have this space to go downstairs and do some writing and there was a second room off of that and he kind of looked at that, and he made a bedroom, and we didn't know what we were going to do with the bedroom. And then, I guess I always knew what we were going to do with the bedroom. We were going to move down there. And that's what we did. And we cleared the second second floor of the bookstore so that Jack could continue to have his recording studio, because he does his radio program, um, Celtic Clan Jam Free, out of that. And then we still have the guest room, because we have so many musician friends coming over from the UK and, and storytellers and such. And then we have a main dining room, the kitchen, that runs the cafe. And then we have what I've always wanted. We have a classics room with overstuffed couches and big comfy leather chairs in it. And people can go sit in there and have their tea. And the fact that you have a writing room in the basement and the book is out implies that there is more writing going on. <laughs> so what can we anticipate another book in the future? We all hope so. Whether there is a published book in the future or not, there is certainly writing going on on a book. And this is my second piece of advice to people who like to write. Always celebrate everything that happens to you. You never know what's going to happen next. So be happy with what you've got while you've got it. And when you move on to the next thing, be happy that you did that too. When I finished Little Bookstore's manuscript before I ever knew about an agent or a writing deal or anything like that, we held a party because I had written what I intended to write. 
And that's kind of how I feel about this second book. I'm writing out some ideas, writing out some fun stuff, and we'll see what happens. But no matter what, the journey is as much fun as the destination. So perhaps there will be something to look forward to in the future. But in the meantime, we have the little bookstore of Big Stone Gap. It's just out in paperback from St. Martin's, and I've been talking with its author, Wendy Welch. I'm Ron Hogan, and you've been listening to Life Stories. If you are not subscribed to this podcast in iTunes, you could subscribe to it in iTunes. And from there, if you were so inclined, it would be wonderful if you would rate it and review it, hopefully nicely on both counts. And then other people will be able to find out about it as well. So thanks for listening, and I hope to join you again for another episode soon. Take care.